1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. He had three ships and left from Spain. He sailed through sunshine, wind, and rain. As a child in school in the early 70s, I learned that Columbus discovered America and proved the world was round. But that isn't exactly so. Most people knew the world was a globe in Columbus's time. His voyages showed that the globe was larger than he thought. Columbus never reached the continent of North America. He visited the Bahamas. Can you really say you discovered a place when other people already live there? There is much passionate discussion today over Christopher Columbus and his legacy. He has come to symbolize European conquest, genocide, and imperialism. To many native peoples, he's not a hero, but a villain. That debate may never be settled, and it may be larger than the historical figure of Columbus. What do we know about Christopher Columbus? Why did Columbus take this voyage? What does his motivation tell us about his time period? And what does it have to do with religion? Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion and social justice and religion and public life. I'm John Shuck. My guest is Dr. Carol Delaney, a cultural anthropologist, a professor emerita at Stanford University, and now a research scholar at Brown University, and she has just published a new book called Columbus and the Quest for Jerusalem. Uh, Dr. Delaney, it is uh, nice to have you back with us on this program. I'm delighted to be back. Thank you for inviting me. And I'm very uh, fascinated by this book, Columbus and the Quest for Jerusalem, because we all know, we learned in grade school, that he was questing for the New World or questing for China or something, wasn't he? That's right. Yep. So what, what, led really you to, what led you to, uh, to uh, take on uh, this uh, understanding of Columbus? Well, first I have to tell you that Columbus was not even on my radar. You know, I've, even the quincentennial passed me by. And it was not until the fall of 1999 when I was teaching a class at Stanford called Millennial Fever. And the purpose was to observe the frenzy, you know, that was going on across the United States, particularly about the turn of the millennium and what was going to happen. And uh, we were also doing some history of Christian millennialism. And in one of the readings, I came across a reference to Columbus's millennial apocalyptic beliefs. I'd never heard about them. It, it just you know, struck me. And so I started asking some of my colleagues and nobody had heard about them. And so I thought this needs some investigation. And so you could say that was the beginning of my quest. And um, I had heard that the John Carter Brown Library at Brown University was a wonderful resource because they have a lot of material related to what they call the encounter between Europe and the New World, and a very knowledgeable staff. And since I was neither am neither a historian nor a medievalist, I needed to be at a place where people could steer me in the right direction so I wouldn't you know, be wasting a lot of time. And it's been fabulous. And because of um, how good it was, I decided to retire from Stanford, and I have moved permanently permanently to Providence, and I'm still a research uh, scholar at the John Carter Brown Library. So as Columbus sailed the ocean, you uh, took a voyage from California to Rhode Island to discover Columbus. That's right. I drove across a couple of times um, to get here. Anyway, it's been a wonderful adventure, and I dedicate, as you probably saw, my book to 
Columbus's extraordinary journey that made mine possible. So I'm, it's been a great retirement project as well. And um, so Columbus, I would say, was not going to find the new world. Nobody knew about the new world. He was going, as you mentioned, to China and hoped to meet the Grand Khan of Cathay, who he'd read about in Marco Polo's travels. And everybody at that time knew about Marco Polo's travels and about the Grand Khan and all the luxurious things, gems and gold and spices. And so that's where he was going. And the few maps that he was able to see and the uh, records that he could read basically thought that you could just go from Europe across the ocean and reach China or reach Asia at that time it was Asia. Um, so nobody had a clue about uh, the new world. Yeah, that was just, that was something that was an after the fact. But uh, so the other one of the other myths that we might have learned in elementary school was that he went to show that the world was round. But that isn't the case either, is it? No, it's not. I mean, he knew the he knew the world was round, as did most people at that time. And there were even some globes that showed uh, the world and showed Europe and then Asia. Um, with the ocean in between. Again, not the new world. No, he was not um, trying to prove that the world was round, but somehow or other that myth continues. I heard a scholar talking about the flat earth theory um, in Columbus's time just a couple of years ago at a conference. So that myth also persists that people in Columbus's time thought it was flat. That's not the case at all. But they did, uh, in Columbus's time, in the medieval period, they had a geocentric view of the universe. Can you describe what um, a typical, uh, what, what, what was the, the view of the universe and the world at that time? That's right. Um, the world, the earth, was at the, at the very center. The earth created by God was at the very center around which the sun, the moon, the stars uh, circled. I mean, there were all these different spheres. Um, and there was one passage, which I could probably read if I could find it about that, but um, that described what it was like. I mean, it was sort of the globe uh, that had nothing to support it on any side. It was there in the middle. And it was not until much later when there was the, um, uh, the change in the theory that the Earth actually circled around the sun. And much later, you know, the the universe that we have, the expanding universe and light years and um, many galaxies and so forth, did not exist. And, and that really has significance for how one views God or how one views uh, the universe. For example, if you could imagine if the globe being the center of everything and everything revolving around it, that it's protected in the, in the loving providence of God's hands and, and there could be a beginning and an end. Um, Whereas, of course, in our universe, we're up on the suburbs of a, a galaxy, which is one of billions. <laughs> so, um, so that idea of an apocalyptic belief or a belief, uh, um, what, what do you mean when you say apocalyptic? Um, well, I know that the word actually means, you know, revelation uh, but, or revealing, but it meant at that time, and it still does to many people today, it means the end of the world. The apocalypse will come and that will be the end of the world. And in Columbus's time, not only was 
um, in a geocentric universe um, and circumscribed spatially, but also time was circumscribed. They believed that there were only seven millennia to the world's duration, each millennium uh, sort of symbolizing one day of creation. And Columbus, amazingly, even a decade before the first voyage, had already tried to calculate how many years there were before the end of the world. Columbus himself did that. Oh, yes, and he wrote it down. We even have it. He wrote it down in 1481 in a blank page of one of his favorite books by Aeneas Piccolomini, who became Pope Pius II. And it's in there, and he figured it all out by starting with creation and going through all the genealogies and adding up all the years of that and the exile and um, came up with a figure of how many years were left. Later, he revised his um, calculations and concluded that there were only 155 years left before the end of the world. And so he became very urgent about trying to um, finance this crusade to take Jerusalem back from the Muslims. That's what his whole voyage was about, was to go and get gold and spices in exchange um, to try and fund, finance a crusade to take back Jerusalem for the Muslims because that's where Christ would come uh, for the second coming in judgment. And Jerusalem had to be in Christian hands. The temple had to be rebuilt because that was to be his throne. I'm speaking with Carol, Carol Delaney, uh, author of Columbus and the Quest for Jerusalem. This is Religion for Life. I'm John Shuck. And this is fascinating, the study of Columbus. So was, was Columbus um, out of step with other people on his time, or were they all thinking that, uh, that the world was going to end soon and they had these uh, millennial pl- apocalyptic beliefs? I think most people in his milieu did think that the end was coming soon. First of all, the, there had been all the Crusades, you know, a couple of centuries before that, that for a little while they had conquered um, Jerusalem, but then it fell again to the Muslims. Uh, then there were, was the plague that decimated the, the um, population of Europe. And then there was the schism in the church. And by this, I don't mean just the one that happened between the Roman Catholics and the Greek Orthodox, but there was a schism in the Catholic Church when there were two popes. And one, again, um, Columbus's favorite author wrote that this is clearly a sign of the apocalypse. And it also um, seemed to refer to the statement in the Bible about, um, you know, there will be plagues and earthquakes and all kinds of horrible things that will happen just before the end. And then the final straw was the fall of Constantinople to the Muslims, to the Ottomans. And that, that was fairly within Columbus's lifetime, wasn't it? 14? Yes, it happened. Um, yes, in 1453. And Columbus was born, most people agree, 1451. And so he grew up with all that um, background of the fall of Constantinople and, and uh, Muslims seem to be taking over another sign. The Antichrist was abroad. And um, so I think a lot of people at that time really thought the apocalypse was coming, that the end was coming, and they were wondering what to do and what, what could be done. And he thought, we've got to get 
Jerusalem back in Christian hands. And the, because getting Jerusalem back in Christian hands would then start the whole cycle of right. Christ's but, return. Right, that's right. And he thought he had, uh, you know, a part to play in this drama, this big drama. This big, that is really fascinating. So it's really because of his religious devotion that he goes on these voyages. That's what I think. And even on the first voyage, he devised this, what is called a sigil, a way of signing his name that people had not yet figured out, although I give my own interpretation in the book, but people will have to read to find that out. But he signed it with the Greek and Latin that means Christ-bearer. His name Christopher means Christ-bearer, and that's how he would sign his name on everything. And also people don't know that when he returned from the second voyage, he had adopted the robes of a late Franciscan monk. That's hardly our image of Columbus. I mean, most people seem to think of him as a conquistador type, which he was not. I really believe he was not. And um, he was very partial to the Franciscans, was friends with many different monks, had stayed in a monastery um, when he first um, was able to um, find a way to get to um, Queen, Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand. Um, it was the monks who helped him um, from that monastery in Spain, La Ravida. So I think his uh, religious, uh, I think his motivation was religious. In the book, you talk about his journey um, on the first voyage. And, and uh, for example, and he ha and throughout the day, he says prayers, uh, morning prayers and midday prayers. You have all of the terms for them the louds and the compline and, and so forth. So it was obvious that he was a very religiously uh, devout person, and he was also skilled at navigation. Um, it was uh, quite incredible uh, to think of the tools and the technology and the knowledge at that time to be able to uh, sail across the Atlantic. So he's obviously a gifted, intelligent person and a pretty courageous person. I think he was an person. extraordinary navigator. And when you think about the lack of instruments. I mean, basically, they had nothing. They had a quadrant, which he hardly ever used, and which was not very reliable on a ship that was rolling around. He mainly used the method of dead reckoning, which I have tried to do when I was uh, did a stint on a tall ship. It's, it's incredible. You drop a piece of orange peel or something from the bow and see how long it takes to get to the stern, and you count off the seconds. And that's how you figure how fast you're going and how many knots you're going. But how do you know where you're going? I mean, I just don't understand how he did it on those old, very small wooden ships. They're so small. I mean, you would not imagine how anyone could cross. And, you know, they leaked. And um, that was an issue. But he made his way across in 33 days, which apparently, according to sailor friends, has really hardly been bested today. And he found the route over and over again. Um, it was really extraordinary. And when he landed there on San Salvador uh, in uh, October 12th, 1492, he met with uh, the native people there. And, and you're uh, recounting in your book that he was uh, respectful to toward them and, um, and, and encouraged his... Uh, shipmates to be as well. 
Yes, and first I want to make one small comment. As most people don't realize that he was using um, the Julian calendar. And if October 12th were put into our the calendar we use, which is based on the Gregorian calendar, it would probably be about October 21st or 2nd. So I think that's an interesting... So we uh, have the day wrong. We got the day wrong. But anyway, <laughs> in his journal, because he was using that calendar, it was October 12th. And yes, he thought the people were, um, he was surprised because, of course, he expected to find the sumptuous um, palaces and so forth of Asia. He was surprised that they were naked, but he thought that they were extremely intelligent, that they seemed to learn very quickly. He thought they were natural Christians. Um, natural Christians. What is that? Because they love their neighbors as themselves. That's what he, it's in his writings. They love okay. their neighbor. They have the sweetest uh, speech. They share everything with each other. Um, and I think it was pr primarily the crew that was uh, much more rapacious and um, did some pretty bad things. Now, we don't think of um, a religious diversity uh, like now we think of we have a shopping mall of religious choices. But then <laughs> they had no idea of even the concept of religion. There was just the right way and all of the wrong ways. Right. I mean, I made that point in the book. And when Columbus talks about Jews and Muslims, for instance, he uses the word secta. And that has been mistakenly translated, I think, in all the English versions as religion. So he would just say they have a um, false religion as if there were many religions. That's not what he's saying. There was, for, for Christians, for Columbus, only one true way, and that was the Christian way. It was, after all, the New Testament um, and communicated by God through his son. So when he talked about the natives, that they did not have um, a secta, that was a positive thing. But most people have said it, that he, when they translate it, they say they have no religion. He was saying they have no secta. In other words, they have no false. They had no false religion. beliefs. And they are natural view. Christians, natural. and he thought that they could be um, uh, taught the uh, faith of Christianity. And of course, Christianity as a term did not exist. It was Christendom and faith, and the whole notion of separate religions circumscribed um, by different practices and beliefs is a very modern uh, view of things. And he and also, he, you know, he wanted. Um, priests to come and instruct the people, unlike some of the other people on his voyage who thought they could just baptize them and that they would automatically be Christian. He really wanted people to come and instruct them about the faith. And he also and he felt that, uh, that, that, uh, that he could uh, uh, convert the emperor to Christianity of China. Yes, Isn't yes that right? he thought that the, um, he could convert the Grand Khan because apparently some of the Franciscan um, monks who had already gone across Asia by land several centuries earlier um, said that the Grand Khan was interested in Christianity and he wanted somebody to go and send a priest to instruct him about it. And so I think Columbus thought that that was something um, he was hoping he could do, not him alone, but also to bring other priests who would would um, train people and tell people about the faith and instruct them. So they weren't just, you know, automatically baptized and becoming Christian. 
This is Religion for Life. My guest is Dr. Carol Delaney, author of the book Columbus and the Quest for Jerusalem. Dr. Delaney is a professor emerita at Stanford University, now a research scholar at Brown University, and she discovered Columbus. And you actually seem rather sympathetic as you write, uh, as, as I read your writing regarding Columbus. Did you become more sympathetic to him as a person um, as you researched him? And I'm asking that question because the symbol or the mythology that we have for Columbus today, he takes a lot of baggage as being um, the um, uh, imperialist, uh, genocide, all of that kind of thing. Yes, I agree. That is the contemporary um, view, and I think it is simply wrong. I think if more people would really read his writings, and quite a bit still exists, which surprised me. I First of all, I had no idea that he wrote anything when I started this. Um, but I think the more I read by him, the more I became convinced that that is not what he was about at all. And one, before I get back to that, there was one thing I did want to mention before we close, and that is when he got to the island he called Hispaniola, he only stayed on San Salvador for a couple of days because he was still looking for the Grand Khan. When he got to Hispaniola, he went to, um, uh, he was invited by a local chief to come visit the village. And as they, uh, the night that they got there, it was Christmas Eve. And during the night, the Santa Maria, the flagship, went aground and could never sail again. And so they um, founded a small little settlement there. He thought, that this was definitely the divine hand, that this little settlement should be born on Christmas Day from the body of the Santa Maria. And he called it Navidad or Natividad. He hmm. writes about it in both ways. So I think that is a really interesting story. And I just had an op-ed piece um, Christmas Eve in the Providence paper to talk about that because that's something that people do not know about, that the very first settlement of Europeans in the New World occurred on Christmas Day and he considered it Navidad. And, of course, then this vast influx of Europeans to the New World. And I think a lot of the animus against Columbus in recent um, decades has been uh, coming from Native peoples who resent the um, influx of Europeans and the dominance and what happened later, primarily through the conquistadors um, and others, um, but in fact, people in the Caribbean were warring among each other before Columbus got there. They were enslaving each other before Columbus got there. So the idea that he is the one who did all of this is just ridiculous. And I became very sympathetic. The more, as I said, the more I read his writings, there are 11 letters to his eldest son. And of course, there must have been letters to his other son as well. But they're quite endearing. And, um, and also he left money for his relatives, for his mistress, um, and for, for the crusade, and for uh, establishing um, churches in the New World, and for priests. So I became very sympathetic to him, reading his own writings, and the way he continually instructed his crew not to go marauding over these um, places and not to rape the women, which they did, not to steal things without exchange, 
It continually talks about the greed of the crew, and there were instructions when he had to go back to Spain, leaving the small settlement of 39 men behind um, on, in Hispaniola at Navidad. He left 39 men there when he had to go back to Spain to try and bring another ship back to rescue them. And he left instructions, do not go marauding, do not rape the women, do not um, take items from these people. And those instructions still exist. Um, of course, when he got back, all of the men at the little settlement were dead because they had done all the things that he had told them not to do. I'm speaking with Dr. Carol Delaney, author of Columbus and the Quest for Jerusalem and Religion for Life, talking with Dr. Delaney via Skype from uh, Providence, Rhode Island, talking about Columbus, and it, it seems, Dr. Delaney, that you've worked to separate the myth from the man, um, the, the legend of Columbus, and the symbol of Columbus, uh, including modern-day symbol of Columbus, from the historical person, and also helped to discover a time period, um, uh, an apocalyptic millennial time period in which people thought the end was coming, and... Um, and, and, and there is a religious fervor uh, in, in, within Christendom to uh, take back uh, Jerusalem from the Muslims for Christians so that Christ could come again. Do you, do you see, as we're, we're, we're really just have a couple of minutes, but I wanted to ask you, do you see a parallel between his apocalyptic views and current views among some religious people today? What can we learn from this story? What can we learn from Columbus? Absolutely. Um, and... I want to say that first I wanted to call it Columbus and the Quest for Jerusalem, a parable for our times, because I do think it speaks to current issues that are going on, particularly among certain groups of Christians and Muslims and Jews as well, um, about the apocalypse. And I feel like this is a self-fulfilling prophecy that we live in a very different time now with weapons of mass destruction. and. The kinds of um, things that are going on, we could actually bring it about. And I think my purpose is trying to shift from Columbus the man to these apocalyptic religious ideas that inspired him and that continue to inspire um, many, many religious groups today. I think it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, and I think it's very dangerous. Dr. Delaney, again, author of Columbus and the Quest for Jerusalem. She is a research scholar at Brown University. We are very pleased to have you with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. We end this interview with Dr. Carol Delaney on a somber note. The dangers of apocalyptic thinking are very real, and as Dr. Delaney points out, potentially self-fulfilling. Columbus was wrong. He didn't start another crusade. Christ didn't return to Jerusalem, and the world didn't end. People throughout history who have predicted that the world would end have one thing in common. They are all wrong. Columbus thought he had a role in a grand plan to usher in the end of time. History went another direction. Columbus's world is different from ours on multiple and significant levels. For us, Earth is not the center of the universe. It's a pale blue dot on the edge of a galaxy that is one of billions of galaxies. The universe is 14 billion years old. Homo sapiens are so late to arrive, it's difficult to plot our arrival on the time scale. The universe will do its thing billions of years after the last of the Homo sapiens has breathed her last. There is no end, certainly, in human time. In terms of the time and space of what we even know of the universe, we're a speck of sand on a beach. 
Human beings are evolved, not created, and not above, but related to all other forms of life. We are only beginning to imagine what meaning is in that universe. Our religion and our spirituality need to catch up with the universe as we discover it and explore ways of creating meaning in it. Before we discover it, can we please not destroy it? Maybe we can say enough of grand plans to conquer the world for God and for God's chosen. Maybe every one of us is chosen. Chosen for a purpose. If I may, perhaps that purpose is to love and to live and to allow others, including our descendants, the chance to do the same. I'm John Schuck, minister of First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethan. This is Religion for Life, a co-production of WETS-FM and HD Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC Emory, Virginia. Podcasts are available at the church's website, fpcelizabethton.org, and information about the show, including contact information for me, is found at religionforlife.me. Be well.